Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. As you're turning in your Bibles, getting prepared for the sermon, let me remind you why why even on um, Christmas Eve day, if you want to put it that way, why even then the main thing about our service is a sermon. There's a lot of churches who will be doing a lot of things to get people interested in Christmas today. And many of those things are not necessarily wrong, even for a church to do. Some of them might be good things that aren't a church's uh, business to do. (laughs) Depends what we're talking about. But often the sermon might be a a little minimized. You want to have a, a... very short and sweet little thing maybe tacked on so that people don't get turned off by that. Uh, so that, that the main attraction can maybe be the music, maybe some sort of pageantry. I remember in a different context growing up, I uh, maybe not Sunday morning, maybe it was Sunday night, but still um, in place of the service, you might have some sort of Christmas-themed drama. I remember make all, making all the, the ladies out in the audience cry as I was supposed to be this Civil War drummer boy who got his leg blown off or something. And, and somehow this was tied to Christmas and a Christmas theme in the Christmas pageant, you know. And, but you'd have the message of Christ in there too. So anyway, why a sermon now? Remember why we're doing this this way. It's because the one, the one born in Bethlehem grew up. He's the Savior who is Christ the Lord, and he's the one who has ordained that the good news of his person and work be proclaimed in this way throughout the earth. It's through the foolishness of preaching and the message preached that God has chosen to save people. And so, we do things God's way, not our way. And yes, he's told us to sing too, which we have done, we will do more today. And that's wonderful. But the power that needs to change us is here in God's word. And it needs to be proclaimed in the way God has told us to. So just a reminder there. um, And if you go to a special candlelight Christmas Eve service somewhere else tonight, something like that. I'm not saying that's wrong either. (laughs) But just remember the centrality of God's word to uh, spreading the news of Christ. I have an advantage today over a lot of more experienced pastors in just one sense. That is, I haven't had to do a Christmas message for that many years in a row yet. So it's still like this is the first time I've gotten to preach on Luke 2 ever, I think. (laughs) So here we go. We're in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Um, And we want to look at the shepherd's savior, the shepherd's savior. I think, looking at my audience, we are all quite familiar with this text. So familiar, we might not really listen to it anymore when we hear it, right? Um, It's sort of, it's so memorized. So let's really listen to a portion of this text. You know that Luke 2 begins with the story, the, the true story, of how God in his providence arranged that Joseph and Mary would not be in Nazareth at the time of Jesus' birth. They would be in Bethlehem because it was the city of David. 
God would bring the, the royal son of David, the Messiah, into the world in exactly the right spot, in exactly the right time. And so it was, it says, that while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, as they did at the time, and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough, because there was no place for them in the inn or in the guest room. We'll talk about that later. But here we come to verse 8. And though it's a familiar scene, I want us to look at it carefully again. Let's read verses 8 through 20 together to start. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the, the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to, over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and found Mary and Joseph, and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. We see in this text, very simply, that the Savior's humble birth displayed his glory as Christ the Lord. You could um, paraphrase that in a way by saying God intentionally glorified his son in his humility. It was to be in a context of humility that Christ's glory would be displayed in his, in his coming as a baby, in his incarnation, becoming flesh, becoming man. As we look at the account... First of all, verses 8 through 14, there's the glorious news of this humble birth. <clears throat> it's such a contrast between the humble birth itself, no fanfare whatsoever, so lowly, and the glorious news and announcement of it. Verse 8, there's the audience of humble shepherds. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds would keep these night watches. They would, you know, probably work in shifts in their turn, um, living outdoors at the time to protect their sheep from those who might uh, rob them or from wild animals, from predators. And it's possible, um, not certain perhaps, but it's very possible from various historical things we know 
about this region and sheep in that area and everything. These sheep um, possibly were destined for the temple sacrifices, but Luke doesn't really tell us that. That's a historical thing. In a way, you ask, why shepherds? Why would God choose to send this great angelic retinue to this random group of shepherds? Well, for one thing, what better people than shepherds? In the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, David, they were all shepherds at one point in their lives. And so uh, God had nothing against shepherds. In fact, he delights to reveal himself to the lowly, the humble, the everyday person. But in a sense, um, so they're the, they're, they are like all the lowly, lowly and humble who respond to God's message. In a sense, the reason it's the shepherds is because it's not about the shepherds. God chose the shepherds just because. It pleased him to do that, not because there's anything special about them. That way, all the glory would go all the more to him. The focus would not be on, look at this wonderful person to whom God chose to reveal this. No, he just chose a group of random shepherds. It was an audience of humble shepherds, but then they got an announcement from a heavenly messenger, verses 9 through 12. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and it says, The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. When you think of the, the visible glory of God, you need to think of such grand things as God coming down on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. Or the bright glory of God, the glory cloud, filling the tabernacle or the temple so that the priests couldn't even go in to minister because it was so intense. That's the sort of picture from Scripture that it's recalling. But this time it's on a random hillside. It's also interesting... And it makes sense as we continue to read the New Testament. It's also interesting. God chose to give a display of his glory on this hillside outside Bethlehem to shepherds, not in the temple to the priests and the religious elite. <laughs> but they were filled with great fear, which is always the natural response when people are confronted. Mere mortals are confronted with the glory of the Lord. So the angel has to first say, as angels often have to say first, when they appear to someone, don't be afraid, fear not, you need to listen to what I have to say, but don't be afraid, I'm not about to kill you, is the idea. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I bring you good news of great joy. Um, that's, uh, that's the word in Greek that would later be used often of proclaiming the gospel. We get our word evangelical from it. Uh, I, you could, you could say sort of, uh, I'm preaching good news, gospel to you. It's good news of great joy too. And this word had been used in the Old Testament prophets, um, speaking of when the deliverance of God's people would be announced in the days of the Messiah. We'll go there in a moment. But the angel says, this good news of great joy will be for all the people. 
And the way Luke's gospel speaks of the people, he's usually talking about the people of Israel. So as we've uh, talked about recently in Ephesians, uh, this is the people to whom God had made covenant promises. But the angels are saying, this news, which we're sent to give you personally, is not just for you personally. It's for God's entire covenant people. He's, he's keeping his promises. He's making good on his word today. That's why we're here. <clears throat> this word for bringing good news or gospel shows up in the Greek Old Testament. For instance, Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Or Isaiah 40 and verse 5 says, uh, this is actually in reference, uh, connecting it to the fact that the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds as the angel spoke to them. Isaiah 40, verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verses 9 through 11 of that text, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, a herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, a herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Again, another reason why, in a picturesque way, the shepherds were an appropriate audience because God was coming to shepherd his people. Then there's the, the, the um, emphasis in Luke on Prophecy being fulfilled this day, today. This, this comes up various times in the Gospel of Luke. This day, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, that sort of a thing. The angel says it's happening now, today. God's people had waited hundreds of years. In one sense, if you go back to Genesis, thousands of years. They had plenty of promises. The Savior had not come yet. Finally, it's today. How could the angels help but break out, erupt in praise and with the good news? We don't understand what that was like. To have a promised Savior who had not actually come. While God's people were continually trampled down, entangled in their sins and trampled down by their enemies. But now, God says... It's time. So you might think, not that the shepherds necessarily had time to process this while it's being told them, but if they had had time to process it, as the angel's telling them, uh, this day is born the Messiah. What are they going to think next? Oh, what noble family. What what. Uh, what royal setting should we seek out to find him? But the angel says, you're going to find him in a feeding trough. Hmm. Well, before I get ahead of myself, of course, the angel makes a point that today is born in the city of David, a savior. 
This is also the way God said it must be. Micah 5, 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from the days of eternity. So one who will come forth from Bethlehem in Judah, but one who, in a, who before he comes forth in that sense, he's already from of old, from the days of eternity. He's God become man. Next verse. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the angel Gabriel... Luke chapter 1 had appeared to Mary, telling her she would be the virgin mother of the Messiah. He had said of this child, he will be great and will be called the son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of course, we already said God providentially reigns. Luke 2 verse 4, that Joseph and Mary, this couple from Nazareth and Galilee, would come down, would be forced to come down to Judah, uh, Judea at the time, to Bethlehem. So the child would be born there in the city, the hometown of David. Because he was David's heir. He would sit on David's throne, but this time a higher throne than David. He would sit at God's right hand. And he's not just any savior. That word would have been used, for instance, of the ancient judges of Israel. God raised up a savior, a deliverer for them, like Gideon or Samson. But this isn't a savior just like that. God isn't just going to raise up some man like Gideon who he finds beating out wheat in a wine press, scared for his life, and God will make that man great to fight off the enemy. He won't raise up a Samson who, despite his many problems and issues, still kills many of the enemy. God is sending the consummate, ultimate Savior, Deliverer. God himself is coming as the Savior of his people. This is a Savior who will accomplish the salvation that's most needed he is the Savior who is, the, who is Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God. The one whom we need as prophet, priest, and king. And he is the Lord. Same word that would have often been used, translating Yahweh in the Old Testament. He is the great I Am. Reminds me of the text in Isaiah. I, I won't go there right now, but text in Isaiah where it pictures God as looking for who will come to his people's aid as they are drowning in their sins and the consequences of their sins. And there's no one. So God says he himself will come. He'll strap on his own armor and he will come and a deliverer will come to Zion to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. It's the Lord himself. Again, Luke chapter 1, previous chapter in this gospel. Gabriel 
had told Mary that she would bear the Messiah. And Mary said, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And this was something which, it seems, most of the Jews of Jesus' day just did not understand. They were looking for a human Messiah. He was human. They weren't looking for God in the flesh. God's plan all along of how he would fulfill his promises was much greater than they could have conceived. He is a Savior who is the Messiah and also the Lord. Now we come to the acclaim of a heavenly host, verses 13 through 14. <laughs> I sort of picture this as, you know, this, this choir of angels. They're waiting behind uh, behind the, the curtain on stage. And the one angel is out there, just on his own, giving the announcement, um, breaking the ice. But they, they all, they just can't wait for that curtain to open, you know. And as soon as the first angel gets the words out, then suddenly the shepherds thought they were just interacting with one angel, which was fearsome enough. Now, there's more than they can count. They're all there, and they're shouting. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, meaning in heaven, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The word translated host there simply simply means an army. But ironically, this army is announcing glorious peace. It's not an army of angels who could have rightly come to destroy sinners to bring God's day of wrath. No, first they are announcing the day of grace. And they are overjoyed. These are the holy angels who who are perfectly conformed to what pleases God. Their hearts are perfectly tuned to their creator. It reminds me of later in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus says that there's joy in the presence of the angels of God when one sinner repents. So they get to announce, this is such a great privilege for them, they get to announce the day of God's grace to make everything right in this fallen world. So this army shows up, but they're announcing peace. Like the stars, the angels are called the host of heaven throughout scripture. I think there's an intentional link there of some sort, um, comparison. And the host of heaven the angels rejoices at God's great and good acts in his world. So we wonder, did the angels just chant their words together that night near Bethlehem? Did they sing the words? Well, we don't know for certain. But we do know the joyful praises of angels sometimes take the form of song, and it would seem most appropriate that they did here. It doesn't actually say that. Job 38, it talks about the day when God was laying the foundation of the earth, Job 38, 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, an Old Testament phrase for angels, 
all the sons of God shouted for joy. But the parallel there in that verse is, is picturing them as morning stars singing together. So one hymn that we have imagines the angel's announcement to the shepherds this way. Angels from the realms of glory, wing your flight o'er all the earth. Ye who sang creation's story, now proclaim Messiah's birth. Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn king. Now you might have noticed as I read the ESV of what the multitude of angels said, it may have sounded a little different than what we traditionally remember from the King James. It said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, the reason that may sound different is that there's a textual difference between groups of manuscripts. Don't worry, I'm not going too far into this. It's actually not that hard to understand this time. Um, there was a textual difference involving one letter at the end of a, a Greek word. Uh, that changes the grammar, if the letter's there or not. It's a sigma, like our S at the end of the word. Um, but this seems to be a scribal error um, in which one letter, which might have been written at that early stage as a tiny little mark, was left off the end of a word. So that changed the Greek grammar. So the KJV followed um, one group of manuscripts that says, on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Nothing unbiblical about that, um, but it does seem like the original text probably said something more like this. Peace among those with whom God is pleased. Um, the verb form of this word for pleasure or being pleased shows up later in Luke 12. Uh, Legacy Standard Bible says in Luke 12, 32, uh, Jesus says to his, his disciples, do not fear, little flock. For your father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. And there was, uh, we, we now know from historic documents from back then, um, this is almost a technical phrase for first century Jews as they talked about God's elect, those God has chosen to give his grace to. They were often called men of his good pleasure, uh, using this sort of Greek wording. So the idea, um, as one person says, seems to be not, not that God's peace can be bestowed only where human goodwill is already present, but that at the birth of the Savior, God's peace rests on those whom he has chosen in accord with his good pleasure. So I do think that's, that's the point. The angels were announcing glory to God in heaven, in highest heaven, and on earth, the flip side of that coin, on earth, this event of the Messiah's birth meant peace toward those whom God in his good pleasure had chosen for salvation. That's the idea. Peace toward God's people, God's elect, you could say. Of course, the Messiah, as Jesus later says in the Gospel of Luke, the Messiah would bring great conflict into the world. Because not everyone would receive him. Many would not. There would be conflict over whether or not to accept Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah. 
But God had his people for whom he was sending his son into the world to save them. And this would be the birth of of the Messiah was to them God's peace given to them. Well, we've seen the glorious news of the humble birth. Now look at the glorious sight of the humble baby. Verses 15 through 20. First of all, there's the eager search for the Christ child. Verses 15 through 16. Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And uh, if you look at it in, in the Greek, it's... It's just very, um, it's like the shepherds can't get the words out fast enough. Let's go, is the idea. It's, it's very urgent. <clears throat> what are we waiting for? This is the best night of their lives. People wonder things like, well, who did they leave in charge of the sheep? Or did they bring all the sheep with them? I don't know. The point is, they couldn't wait to get out of there and go find this baby. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Again, we're used to hearing the word manger. But all that means is a feeding trough. God sent his son, the word of God the Father who spoke the worlds into existence. He sent the one who would crush the devil's head. But he sent him into such circumstances that he'd be born just like any one of us were born. All the pain, the blood. And when he is born, he's wrapped up like any other baby of the time would have been to keep the limbs straight. And baby, baby would feel secure. But it was the custom of the time. Uh, swaddled in strips of cloth. But there's no cradle for him but a feeding trough for animals eat. What a a stark picture. How God the Son came down and down and down to a feeding trough. Traditionally, we've come to expect this manger, this feeding trough, to have been in a separate outbuilding for livestock. So that's where the idea of a stable or a barn comes in often, right? Could have been. Ancient tradition points to a cave in Bethlehem as such a place where animals were kept. So if you put a lot of stock in that, uh, you may or may not. But um, there is a spot in Bethlehem marked by the Church of the Nativity where um, tradition says that the best information anyone has, says perhaps it was a cave there where animals were kept. But Luke 2, 2 verse 7 could also be translated that Mary laid Jesus in a feeding trough because there was no place for them in the guest room. So the Middle Eastern context might also have been that at one end of the house, the animals would stay under the same roof as the people. But it was like a little sunken area at, the, at one end. Uh, like half a level down, and there would be the feeding trough in there. And uh, as David Garland puts it here, he said, peasant homes normally consisted of two rooms, 
with one used exclusively for guests. That was the nice guest room. <laughs> the family cooked, ate, slept, and lived in the main room, and any animals who were also were also brought in for the night and kept at the lower level of the living room, where the feeding trough would be. Jesus' family stayed in, in an ordinary home, as would be expected. That's how he sees it. The couple stayed in the animal quarters of the home of a relative or acquaintance because someone who outranked them occupied the upper room in an overcrowded home. That's some of the latest scholarship. It's just opinion, uh, but it's interesting to think about. That may be the setting. In any case, the point is, Jesus came with no outward sign of rank. The feeding trough was all that was left. So that's where they laid him. Nothing special. Later in Luke, Luke 9, verses 57 through 58, someone told Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This was the pattern throughout Jesus' ministry. If you follow me, don't look for comfort. Outward comfort. Nice things. Recognition. <laughs> don't look for that. I struggle to find a place to lay my head. That started at his birth. But don't forget the, the joy of the shepherds. They didn't care, in a sense, that he was in a feeding trough. How could this be the, the Messiah, this important, this all-important person? <clears throat> they just believed the angels and they were overjoyed. This was a Savior coming to lowly circumstances for lowly people. God had reached all the way down to them, to keepers of animals. He put his son in a feeding trough. What condescension. So the shepherds are still overjoyed. They found him. With Mary and Joseph. And so that then there's the spreading news about this child. Verses 17 through 19. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things. Or literally all these words. You could also translate that. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The idea seems to be that, that sort of wording. That Mary was still trying to piece everything together. Such momentous things were happening to this to this girl from Nazareth. She'd been the only person in history to conceive as a virgin and give birth as a virgin. And the angel Gabriel had told her this this was the Son of God. What did that even mean? And now she's given birth, and they probably thought. She and Joseph probably thought that there would be no fanfare here. They were a poor family in Bethlehem, in from out of town because of a, a census that Caesar had decreed. But suddenly, people come beating down their door, as it were, in joy, to see the child. <laughs> because angels had told them who this child was. Mary's still trying to put it all together and make sense of it all. There's that song, Mary, Did You Know? And some people really don't like the song. Of course she knew. The angel told her. Well, I'm sure it still took a lot of time for it all to sink in. 
I'm not giving a vote for or against that song. <laughs> Staying out of that. Um, it took a long time for everything to sink in. Remember, even during Jesus' later ministry, Mary, along with her family, kind of thought he was nuts at one point because of how he was conducting his ministry. Later on, she, she starts to rebuke him when he's 12 years old and he was just in there and he stayed in Jerusalem in the temple informing the teachers of Israel. And, and what are you doing, son? Your father and I have been looking for you everywhere. What an experience it must have been to, to be assigned to parent the Son of God. So yes, she's still trying to piece everything together, treasuring up all these things in her heart, make sense of everything. Incidentally, this may also be another indication. Luke, Luke speaks of how he spoke with eyewitnesses to put his gospel together at the beginning of Luke chapter 1. It may have been that he interviewed Mary and he's getting a lot of this from her or maybe from another member of her family. We don't know. But there's a lasting impact on the shepherds. Verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. It didn't, it wasn't just a momentary, oh, that's nice. And then they went on about their everyday life like nothing had happened. This stuck with the shepherds. Their joy was not fleeting. They returned. They're still glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They're, they're, they're struck with awe that God would condescend to give them the birth announcement. Why? Just because just he's such a gracious God. And to think that they would be the generation that would see the Messiah face to face. They just saw that baby. It's him. Wow. There was a lasting impact on them. Well, as we said, the big idea is that the Savior's humble birth displayed his glory as Christ the Lord. Let's talk about applying it further. First of all, Obviously, this this account is meant to give us um, to give us a picture of something even bigger than just what happened that night. God has chosen to privilege the humble with the Savior's joy and peace. It's God's choice, His good pleasure, to privilege the humble, the lowly, the nobodies with the Savior's joy and peace. You know, that's partly why the world despises what we're doing here today, isn't it? Because you people, to my knowledge, aren't the movers and shakers of the world. <laughs> and so, if it's true, the world might say, we don't get it. If, if, if it's true this Christianity thing is true, why, why would Christians by and large be the, the, the outcasts of this world? The, the lowly people. Not the important people. Not the smart people. Like the Jewish rulers in Jesus' day said to Nicodemus when he dared say something halfway in support of Jesus. Are you from Galilee too? 
which one of the, the Pharisees has believed in him? Which one of the important people has believed in him? Why would you believe in that guy? Well, remember, God intentionally does things this way because it delights him to do that. He's chosen to privilege the humble with the Savior's joy and peace while he leaves the proud out in the cold. And by the way, if you're one of the proud, you're going to get left out in the cold if you don't let go of your pride. You need to humble yourself to listen to God's message about his son and humbly respond. Mary, in Luke chapter 1, in what we call the Magnificat, she, filled with the Holy Spirit, expressed what was on her heart as she was pregnant with the Son of God. And as she contemplates this, you see this, this theme shooting out of God's grace to the humble and his rejection of the proud. Mary said, Luke one forty six, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, his his maidservant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Later, Luke chapter 6, Jesus will lift up his eyes on his disciples and say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Likewise, Luke 10. Starting in verse 21, it says, In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Well, there's that word again for those with whom God is pleased, his good pleasure. That's the word here. Such was your pleasure, your gracious will, to reveal these things to little children. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So again, this is an intentional theme. This is God's choice to leave out the proud, 
revealed himself to the lowly. And famously, Paul said to Christians like us, 1 Corinthians 1.26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. (laughs) But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Secondly, as we apply this, that Savior, though King and God, Christ and Lord, came in humble poverty. This should be very uh, obvious to us at Christmas. It's the baby in the manger for crying out loud. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Like another Christmas, Christmas hymn puts it, He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. And his shelter was a stable, and his cradle was a stall. With the poor and meek and lowly lived on earth our Savior holy prophet Isaiah said that the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, would have God's spirit upon him to bring forth justice, righteousness to the nations, but he wouldn't cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he would not break, a faintly burning wick he would not extinguish. The Messiah would come in gentleness, not demanding honors, accolades, He would come so that even those who were like bruised reeds, easily broken off, he wouldn't break them. He'd be so gentle. His mission was a mission of gentleness to save those who were doomed to die, who were caught in their sins. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says about this Messiah that, He grew up before him, before God, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So I haven't gone far enough just to say Jesus came for lowly people, for everyday people like you and me. And he came as an everyday lowly person. I haven't gone far enough if I stopped there. It has to be said, the reason he came under such circumstances 
and he had a life of suffering ending in a horrible death. It was all because he was taking our sins and the penalty for our sins on himself. He came into a fallen world as part of a fallen race, though he himself had no sin. He took that heavy, awful load on himself so that he could take it away for us. There was no other way to make us right with God, right with our Creator. There was no other way to free us from our sins and from death, which is the just penalty for sin. Hebrews 2.14 and 15 say, Since therefore the children, whom God intended to bring to glory, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Philippians 2 tells us in the church, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I need to be treated like God, because I am God. No, that's not how Jesus came. But he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. One more hymn before I go to the last point of application. Who is this so weak and helpless? Child of lowly Hebrew maid, rudely in a, sh- in a stable sheltered, coldly in a manger laid. Tis the Lord of all creation who this wondrous path has trod. He is God from everlasting and to everlasting God. Who is this a man of sorrows? Walking sadly life's hard way, homeless, weary, Sighing, weeping over sin and Satan's sway. Tis our God, our glorious Savior, who above the starry sky is for us a place preparing where no tear can dim the eye. Who is this? Behold him shedding drops of blood upon the ground. Who is this despised, rejected, mocked, insulted, beaten, bound? Tis our God, who gifts and graces on his church is pouring down. Who shall smite in holy vengeance all his foes beneath his throne? Who is this that hangs there dying while the rude world scoffs and scorns, numbered with the malefactors, torn with nails and crowned with thorns? Tis our God who lives forever mid the shining ones on high in the glorious golden city reigning everlastingly. So, Third and last, let us respond to such a Savior with humble awe and loud joy. You have to respond to Jesus. Jesus' very existence forces a response. And there's only two choices. 
full acceptance or rejection. You must accept him. And what's the proper manner in which to accept him? For one thing, humble awe. We should just stop in our tracks. Forget about all the things we think are important in our life. Stop in humble awe. Such a Savior came for us. And then we need to have some loud joy. The psalmist had such humble awe when he thought of the Creator, who is this baby in the manger in Luke 2. Psalm 8, O Lord, O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet John 1 tells us it's this very person who set the stars in place who came for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him came to his own and his own people did not receive him but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth Now, that's an apostle saying that John, who walked and talked with Jesus on this earth. <clears throat> but the apostle Peter, 1 Peter 1.8 says to Christians like us, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls Concerning this salvation, which is yours, is the idea, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, Things into which angels long to look. If the angels long to look into these things, if they erupted with joy, joyful praise at Jesus' birth, how much more should we? We're the redeemed. Angels have no redemption. They're a third party watching this and rejoicing. But they weren't dead in their sins. We were. The angels had no need of redemption. But what about us sinners? To us, 
was born a Savior who is called Christ the Lord. To you. It's for you personally. We read that the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. What about us, whom the incarnate Lord now crucified and risen as redeemed by his blood? The shepherds rejoiced at the beginning of the story. We have the end of the story. We should have some loud joy. If you've received this Savior by faith, celebration is certainly in order. Give gifts to each other and to those who have nothing. Feast. Rejoice. But don't forget to worship in awe. And don't forget to sing for joy. The world loves all all the earthly expressions of our joy, but they love to try to have that without submitting to the person who gives the joy. There's plenty of people who can have a big feast at Christmas, can send cards to each other, can decorate the house, have a big tree, who can take off work and rejoice in that, have time with family, but they're missing the real lasting joy. We have it. So are we going to forget the one who gave it? Don't just keep Christ at the center of Christmas. Keep him at the center of your life. All the time. And especially on the Lord's Day. Let's respond with humble awe, but also with loud joy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the unspeakable gift you've given to us, your son. Though he was rich, he became, as Paul said, for our sakes, poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins, for reconciliation to you. Thank you that your son became flesh and blood, that he might bring many brothers for himself, many children for you to glory. And we are those children. Thank you that Jesus was born as one of us so he could die as one of us and in our place. He could take your wrath against our sin on himself and then rise from the dead to give us his inheritance of eternal life. Lord, we've heard these things over and over and over again. And we in our sin might be tempted to say, well, yeah, I've heard that. Is is there anything new? Anything more? Help us not to have that attitude. Help us to be struck anew with the awe and the, the joy which we should have in Christ. And may the world, the onlooking world, take note. Because they see your glory transforming us and giving us joy in Christ. We pray that those without the Savior will turn to him and that they will be able to share our joy for all eternity because to us has been born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We ask this in his name. Amen.